Father God, I thank you for uh, your word. Um, I thank you for what it has to teach us, and I pray that uh, you would open our hearts to be sensitive to what your word has to say, uh, that we would not uh, blow it off or think that we've heard this before and that there's nothing here for us, Lord, but that we would be sensitive uh, to the teaching that's in this book. I pray all this in your name. Amen. One of the great blessings of being able to open up the Word of God and read it is that uh, that's the inspired and infallible Word of God. And I think often uh, we listen to it, and it doesn't often weigh on us the way that it should, that this is a revelation not from man. This is not the musings of some people a long, long time ago. This is the everlasting and unchanging Word of the living God, uh, which is true thousands of years ago, and it's just as true today. And one of the things I love about Hosea, we talked about this a little bit last week, is it is a narrative portion of text, which means it tells us a story, uh, and it tells us the story in a way to communicate a truth to us that we would otherwise be unable to really receive well. Uh, one example of this, and you don't need to turn there, uh, comes out of Second Samuel chapter 12. Uh, there's this story of Nathan uh, and David. You see, Nathan uh, was a prophet sent by God to expose David to the sin of his adultery with Bathsheba. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you get this story of Nathan having to come and rebuke David. And when he comes to rebuke David for his adultery with Bathsheba, he tells him a story in order to communicate a truth. And I'll read that story to you. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come into him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to stay with him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You see, David had no idea that he was the man when that truth was being told to him. Because it was communicated in narrative, a truth was able to be communicated that would otherwise have fallen on deaf ears for David. And Nathan used this medium as a way to communicate something that was very, very true and right on the nose in a way that was disarming to David. And so it is also in the book of Hosea. We get that same narrative that's laying onto us a pretty heavy truth in the form of a story, the story of Hosea and Gomer and their children, which we looked at in chapter one. And so if you'll recall with me, Hosea had to go and take for himself Gomer as a wife. And there was a specific criteria that Gomer met to be fitting for the wife of Hosea. That is that she was going to be unfaithful to him by prophecy of God. So God says to Hosea, take for yourself a wife who's going to become unfaithful to you, who's going to commit adultery against you, and take her unto yourself and love her and have children with her. And so, so Hosea does this thing. And Hosea does this thing and he grows up these children and he names them each of these three peculiar names. He names the one Jezreel, the other No Mercy, and the other You Are Not My People. And these names are all kind of weird and this whole story is kind of weird. 
And what I often think is that Hosea, remember, he's doing this as part of his life. This is not a story that he's telling. This is not just his writings. This is his everyday, daily life. He's living with this woman, and he's living with and raising these children. And so I often think that Hosea might have been walking around at that time in Israel, and people bump into him on the streets, right? Maybe he's going out to look for his wife after she strayed from him again. And he, he's looking out, and he's searching for her, and he's, he's saying, have you seen Gomer? Have you seen my wife? And people say, you know what, Hosea? You're such a, you're a nice guy. You're a pretty good dude, you know? Why do you think that Hosea, or that Gomer is deserving of your love? Why did you choose to love a woman who's so unfaithful to you? Why did you choose to have children with her? That doesn't make any sense. She's not deserving of your love. And I think that Hosea would rightly respond that you are wondering how I could love an unfaithful and adulterous wife. You're wondering how I could do that. But here, the reality is that I'm actually wondering how a holy and righteous God can love an unfaithful and adulterous nation and call them unto himself. And I often imagine that Hosea had to recount this story countless times because this was his everyday life. This was his ministry, his lifeblood. And this was the message that he had, was that not only was his relationship with Gomer a picture of something greater, but God was doing something in and through that relationship that is going to paint the picture even further. And so as that story was resumed or paused last week, we're going to resume it this week to the unfoldings of essentially a court case. So this narrative is going to continue first from uh, a biographical account of what happened with Gomer and Hosea, and now we get into this essentially a court proceeding, a legal procedure. And in this court procedure, we're going to get Gomer, who's on trial. She's the one who's being accused. And you're going to get Hosea, who is the prosecutor. And then at some point in the passage, it's very difficult to tell where exactly it happens, but the voice of Hosea is flipped with the voice of God himself. And now God has a lot of charges to levy, not against Gomer, but against Israel. And it's really difficult to figure out exactly where the switch happens because it kind of flip-flops all over the place. Because the stories are so interwoven that the adultery of Gomer with her real human lovers who were not Hosea is so intertangled with the adultery of Israel and the worship of gods who are not Yahweh. And so we get this story today, but it follows this basic pattern. We're going to get the charges first, then we're going to get the evidence that's going to be laid against her, and then we're going to get three different verdicts or three different judgments. And in your text, you can look and you can see the judgments. They are in verse 6. They are the therefore. And then again in verse 9, another therefore. And then lastly in verse 14, there's a third therefore. So if you look for the therefores, those are the punishments or the verdicts that God has against the people. So if you read with me in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So Gomer is going to be on trial right now, and the first thing that Hosea has to do is he has to call witnesses to the stand. And the witnesses he's choosing to call are his own children. The children who, a few verses earlier, he's called out and redeemed, saying, you are my people and you have received mercy, despite the initial indictment that you are not my people and you have not received mercy. And he's going to call them to the stand. And they are hostile witnesses because he has to plead with them to call out their own mother because they were at one point in time guilty of the same sins that she is now being charged with. 
And he says, say to your brother, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And these two, the brother and the sisters, the individuals of Gomer's family, have to now call uh, Gomer herself out. And so in this metaphor, the children are the individual persons of Israel, and Gomer is the nation at large. So if you follow this metaphor when it starts flip-flopping, Gomer is the nation of Israel, the head nation, the mother, and her children are the individual peoples of that nation. And the metaphor gets messy from there, but that is the basic root of it, that the children are the individuals and Gomer is the nation. And so the individuals who have received mercy and the individuals who are now the people of God have to turn around to the nation of Israel and plead with it to relent from its sin, the sin that they themselves individually were guilty of. So it says, plead with your mother, for she is not my wife, right? Plead for the nation of Israel, for they are no longer my nation. And ask them to relent from their prostitution, from their adultery, and put it away and put it aside. And you see, oftentimes, God will call a nation to repentance using the voices of individuals. So it was in Israel when he calls Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah all these prophets in the Old Testament that you find right at the end of your canon of the Old Testament. These prophets were all called to Judah and to Israel to call them to repentance. And they were sent by God, individuals redeemed by God, who he has shown mercy to and who he has called my people. And now they have to turn to their nation, their mother, and they have to plead with her to relent and to repent of their sin. And this was because the sin that Israel has is idolatry. It has idolatry and worship of false gods, which we will talk about in a moment. But this was true in the 8th century BC during this timeline of all these prophets, both the major and the minor prophets. But this isn't limited to the 8th century BC. In fact, in the 16th century, you will recall that there was a monk who had to go out and who had to go and levy a charge against his mother and his church. And the bride of Christ had once again strayed away from her original passion, her original love, her original husband. And she had to be called to repentance. And so God called her out using Luther and called her back to the scripture. And he called her out using Zwingli and Tyndale and Calvin and Knox. And they were individuals who were levied by God and charged to call out the city, call out the bride, call out the nation to repentance. So just as Israel was guilty of drifting, don't think that this is so far away from us because the church itself had drifted. And in fact, the church is still drifting today. That's why uh, often I think that we don't realize that we call ourselves Protestants, uh, but we are protesting something. Protestant means you are protesting the church, Rome, for her idolatry against God. So if you are a Protestant, that means you are either actively or you've grown up in a tradition not realizing it, calling Rome to repentance and hoping to one day again have communion with her because she is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Just as Israel was the bride of God in the Old Testament. And this pattern continues. So as these prophets were calling Israel to repentance and Israel was eventually punished for her sins, we also plead with our church to call it to repentance. So this is not something that is sequestered into the 8th century BC. This was 16th century, even to present day AD. And we call the bride of Christ back to repentance. 
And the reason we have to call the bride of Christ back is because she struggles with idolatry. She struggles with idolatry. Idolatry is the sin of Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or another way you could read that is you shall have no other gods besides me. God is not only saying you can't throw me out and put another God in my place. He's also saying you can't keep me and have another God right next to me. I am the only one who is worthy of that kind of worship, of that kind of exclusive glory. God is an exclusive God. And so thus idolatry is an adulterous thing to do because you are taking the one who deserves utmost exclusivity and you are just freely lavishing that glory anywhere it goes anywhere you please to put it. And so Israel was guilty of idolatry as well. The worship specifically of Baal, who was a Canaanite deity. Idolatry, however, is not just the worshiping of false metal carved images and bowing down to them. Idolatry is the worship of any false god. Or let me put it another way. Idolatry is the worship of any distortion of the one true god. A lot of times we think of idolatry as the worship of metal images, but that's just not true. Today, idolatry is just the same as it was back then, which is it is the worship of any distortion of the one true God. It's any distortion of who God really is. And God has plainly revealed himself in the book that he gave us. In fact, there are 66 separate books that he gave us that plainly reveal himself to us. But yet we still struggle with idolatry. In fact, in our nation, as I was reflecting on this, I think that at a national level, we all are guilty of both individually and corporately of these types of sins. We struggle with the idolization of success. And we think that we're going to find our meaning and our purpose, which ultimately is to be found in God, and the success that we are going to gain in our career. We think that we are going to find our uh, worship and our glory finally in wealth, that as soon as we have enough to be happy, and as soon as we have enough to be safe and enough saved up in the bank for a rainy day, that we'll be good to go. And that's where we're going to find our satisfaction. And we idolize pleasure and we pursue pleasure. In fact, uh, we struggle with eating fast food and things like this because we, we just can't say no to ourselves. We can't deny our own pleasure. And we struggle with the idol of sex. If there's a nation that's ever been struggling with its identity sexually, it is our nation today. We can't say no or deny anyone anything for fear that the God of sex would be denied. And so we idolize sex. And so we, we say crazy things like you can decide what gender you are. And you can have sex with whoever you want to and it just doesn't matter because God just doesn't care that much about sex. It's a distortion of who God is at the feet of pleasure and at the feet of the idol of sex. And we worship and we idolize science. And we think that in science, we're going to find all the answers that we could possibly find. And we got a rude awakening in 2020 when science did not have a lot of answers for us when we thought it should. In fact, science is still working on a vaccine that's going to be portable. <laughs> Nine months after we had a problem. But we thought that science was going to keep us alive forever and that the healthcare system was perfectly fine in America, right? And we had all of these things levied up and all these stakes claimed in science. But if you talk to scientists, you'll realize that they have just as few answers as a lot of other people do because they worship things like naturalism. And science is confused in that it thinks that we are no different than the animals outside, maybe, maybe removed by a little bit of evolution, a little bit of fine-tuning. But other than that, we're the same. And then we wonder why, on the basis of that truth claim, 
that we struggle with things like sex and war and all these heinous crimes against humanity, realizing that for the last 50 to 100 years we've been teaching people there is no moral compass, you are just an animal. In fact, you are the most evolved animal. But still somehow we're supposed to have some moral compass inside of us. But this is what we teach people. And we struggle with the idol of education and we pursue letters after our name and degrees in front of our name. And we pursue that thinking that in it we will find success and accolades and awards. But mostly, I think, in the church, not corporately as a nation, but in the church, we struggle with the idol of worshiping our own version of who God is. We like to fashion God after our own images. And we do so unknowingly and unintentionally. But we still do it. You see, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, where the uh, Ten Commandments are, and you flip over just a few chapters to Exodus chapter 32, you will turn there with me. Exodus chapter 32. It's the second book of the Bible and chapter 32 is close to the end of the book of Exodus. We get this account of what it looks like to worship our own version of God. This is a famous story that I had to learn growing up in church called the golden calf, right? We learn about this story. It gets nice. uh, I don't know if you ever had those felt board characters where you put them up and then you move them around and like Sunday school and stuff. Yeah. So this is a story I learned then. And uh, I was amazed to find out uh, in my study over the last few weeks that the golden calf narrative is really not what I thought it was. You see, what I had this image of is that God had revealed himself to the people on Mount Sinai. And then a few chapters later, they had turned from God and they were worshiping a bronze idol, a golden calf. And I was like, Where? That, that makes no sense. Like they just had the living God reveal himself, himself to them and then they turn around and they worship something that they just made. But you see, that's not what happens in this story. In fact, if you read this story, you will find out what is actually going on with the people. So I'm going to start with you in verse 1. And when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And here is where you get the interpretation. In verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation. And listen to his proclamation. He says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Aaron, the Levitical priest that was responsible for the people of Israel, has fashioned a golden calf as an image of Yahweh. You see, they try to worship God as they saw fit for God to be worshipped. They're not worshipping a new God that they just invented. They are trying to worship the one true God through a metal image. You see, Aaron says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. In my ESV, Lord is all caps, L-O-R-D, which means that's the covenant name of God. Not Adonai, which means sovereign or ruler. This is Lord Yahweh as he reveals himself as his covenant relationship to his people. 
So Aaron says, we are going to worship our covenant God through this golden calf. What they have done is they have worshiped God on their terms. They have fashioned a God, a Yahweh, who is now tameable. In the image of a golden calf, a bronze bull, who's going to be the conquering God, Yahweh, and they're going to worship this God, this calf, this image of Yahweh on their own terms as they see fit. And if you read this story and you continue reading it, which I encourage you to do some point this week, it does not end well for them. In fact, God comes back with a vengeance on his people for their idolization and their false worship of the golden calf. There is idolatry in the church today because we worship a God that is all love, that is all grace, and that is all mercy, but a God that has no wrath, no teeth, no jealousy, no vengeance, because we're more comfortable with a God who's all grace and all mercy and all love, because that's what our culture values. And so be careful that you don't value a God or worship a God that's made after your own image and the image of your own culture. So when we read things about blood sacrifices to animals, we got to remember that this is God. He's a living God. He's not tamed by Western culture and Western standards. He's not a Western God. He's the God of the universe. You cannot distort Yahweh and make him into whatever you want him to be. He has revealed himself plainly in his word. And so now the charge that has been levied against Gomer, uh, this charge here that we read in verse 2, if you flip to verse 3, now that the guilt is certain, the warning that, they are going to give, that Hosea is going to give to Gomer, or rather that God is going to give to Israel, is a striking warning. He says, lest I strip her naked, verse 3, and make her as in the day that she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. You see, he's going to strip naked his people. Remember that they on the ground were guilty of the worship of Baal, who is the God of fertility, the God of the harvest. So what Yahweh says is, you think Baal's the one who delivers you that harvest? I'm going to strip it naked. I'm going to strip the ground of its fertility. I'm going to take you out into the desert where nothing grows. I'm going to prove to you that you thought you were worshiping Baal because he delivers this thing to you. I'll tell you the whole time it was me delivering that fertility and that prosperity to you. Don't worship a false god because the warning is stark. And he says that not only is he going to have this judgment corporately on the nation, but also individually among people who participate in the sins of the nation. He says in verse 4, Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. Or in other words, they are guilty of the same sin that their mother is guilty of, the worship of a false deity. The individuals and the nation at large will both be punished for the sins. So if you continue reading in verse 5, he says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. There's this amazing account in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 30 to 34. We're not going to turn there now, for time will fail me to tell you about it. But in this chapter in Ezekiel 16, you get a strikingly similar account that what we are guilty of as a nation and as people is not that we had lovers pursue us and we gave in to their seduction, but we pursued other lovers other than God. 
And it says, for she said, I will go after my lovers. You see, Israel is the one who's initiating the adultery away from God. No one is tempting them. This is a sin that is internal within Israel. And our idolization and our adultery against God is internal within us. It's not some circumstantial situation that puts something into us that wasn't already there. Our sin is deep within us. And we pursue the adultery because it sits within inside of us. And it is what makes us unclean. And she's confused, and the nation of Israel is confused, thinking that it is the lovers, the Baals, who give the bread and the water and the wool and the flax and the oil and the drink. But we get then the first punishment because God is going to let them know that it is not Baal who gives you all of those things. In verse 6, he says the first punishment. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. The first judgment God has on the people is a judgment of restraint. He is going to, in his grace, restrain them from their sin as a means of redeeming them back to himself. If you look down in the end of verse 7, he, the, the quote from Gomer is, I will go and return to my first husband. The restraining of the people of Israel is in an effort to turn them back to God, to look back to their first husband. And God will often today restrain us from fully being able to embrace the lavishness of our sin in order to turn us back to himself. Often we feel like this is an act of judgment upon us, and in many ways it is, But if you remember, the crime of adultery is guilty of capital punishment. In the time of the Hebrews, that would usually be by burning or by stoning. And so when God looks to the people of Israel and says, I'm going to restrain you, we should see that not only as a punishment, but also as an act of great mercy upon the people. And his mercy and his patience is meant to bring us back into repentance. And so it is with the people of Israel. And in our lives, God has many forces and many common graces by which he extends to us to restrain us in our sin. Most of all, his providence, which will often seek to thwart the sins in which we pursue so that we are frustrated in our ability to fully engage in sin. And often in God's providence, he will bring around us a community of people who will seek to restrain us in our adult lives. When we were young and in our youth, we had parents who acted as our restraint to keep us from sin. And if you are a parent, you should be wise to keep your children from sin and restrain them in order to faithfully teach them and to faithfully act as the providence of God that you are in their lives. And also he's given us an internal morality, an internal compass, which restrains us from fully being able to embrace sin. Throughout our whole lives, this morality is present. And for those of us who are believers, he gives us an additional layer. He gives us the Holy Spirit, which seeks to restrain us from sin. And it is the common grace of God, his common mercy that he will extend to all of us. His providence is the restraint on our internal lusting after our idols, our internal depravity. And so then if you continue in verse 8, the reason for the restraint is because she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. The gifts that are from God are not from your idols. 
which means if you pursue career and you find success in career, the blessing is not from your pursuit of the idol, the blessing is from God. If you pursue wealth or success or accolades or education and you find success in those means, the means by which you have found success is an extent of the gracious gift of God, not your own earnings or accolades or rewards. If you serve that idol, just understand the wealth does not come from the idol itself. So God restrains us sometimes to end our career, to restrain us in our education in order to make us realize the emptiness of the idol that we pursue. And when he restrains us, it is so that we come to the realization, the cognizant knowledge of the fact that it was him all the time who gave us the grain and the wine and the oil and more than that, who gave us the silver and the gold by which they would fashion the very idols that they would worship Baal with. And so in our pursuit of our idols, God prevents us from self-destruction and makes us aware of the fact of what's really going on, which is that it's him who's giving that gracious and loving gift. And there we find then the second judgment of God, the second therefore. So remember, we are unaware, Gomer is unaware of the fact that it is God the whole time who's providing her the good gifts. And so he says, therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth and her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. You see, God is going to expose the emptiness of Gomer's idols by stripping down all of his blessings and leaving her with just her and the idol. Or Israel with just Israel and its Baal worship. But none of the gracious gifts of God to accompany and so there's going to be no confusion who the gifts were from. Israel is free to pursue those things, but it is at the removal of God's blessings. The second judgment is God removing his blessings from the people of Israel. And the blessings that he gave the whole time were in fact to cover the nakedness of her adultery. You see, even in Israel's adulterous pursuits, God covers her with his mercy and provides for her covering and clothing but for a prostitute to be exposed is the punishment that is due. And so, in verse 10, now he will uncover her lewdness and he'll do it in the sight of her lovers. And no one is going to rescue her out of his hand. This is a husband who has been wronged and it is a husband who will have his just punishment on his wife. Which is to say that he is jealous for her affection. He sees her sharing her bed with whoever she pleases and he is stirred to anger as a result of her infidelity. And if you are a good husband, you will be stirred to anger by finding an unfaithful wife. Love is jealous and marital love is jealous. The love of God is jealous in that it is exclusively between God and his people. Or in the case of a marriage covenant, it's between the man and the wife. It is not between whoever they please to go with. That is a false idea of what love is. Love is not something you can freely share with as many people as you choose to. Like I said earlier, our culture worships at the idol of sex, and often today I hear so many accounts of these relationships that are all kinds of weird looking, with people who sleep with whoever they want. Sometimes they're married, and it's called like an open marriage. 
And it's just such a distortion of the gift that God has originally given. And it lacks that covenantal, jealous love, which is rightfully there to preserve the integrity of the marriage relationship. If you have a jealous love for your spouse, you will pursue them despite them wronging you. If you don't care who they sleep with, what's to restrain you from just walking out whenever you want? The purpose of this jealous love, this jealous punishment of God is redemptive as well. Just like the first time, the purpose of the punishment is a redemption. In seeing that it is God who rightfully gives the wine and the oil and the flax and the wool, Gomer might be come to the realization that these idols, these bales that she worships, they are not the source of her satisfaction. She's going to come to her senses and all of Israel is going to come to their senses if the, if the punishment has its effect. And they're going to finally turn again back to Yahweh, back to their first husband. But in fact, the opposite is true in this case. In fact, if you read on to verse 12, he's going to have to lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, and I quote, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. You see, Gomer was confused. She thought that the wages that she was getting, the myrrh and the flax and the oil and the wool, they were all her wages for her adultery. In fact, she wasn't really concerned about her adultery. She thought he had earned all of the good gifts and blessings that she was receiving. She thought that this was the gracious gift of her lovers, her bales, her wealth, her pursuit of success, that they were giving her good gifts for her work. But we know in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, not wool, not flax, not gold, not providence. The wages of sin is death, and the pursuit of an idolatrous passion is death. The only thing that you and I can earn in our fallen nature is the just punishment which we deserve, death. And he's going to punish her for adultery by taking away the gifts and worshiping false gods with those gifts that he has given her. And I think, as I reflect on this, that the gifts that God has given us, we often turn and worship false gods with. I think about the gift of time and how much time we spend worshiping at the feet of other gods who are not the one true God. I think that you would find someone hard-pressed to find maybe an hour of time in the morning or in the evening to spend with the Lord. But we can make time for additional work that will give us more money. We can find time for additional career success and taking on additional responsibilities at work so we can advance our career. We'll find time to study for an exam if it's going to advance our education. But we just don't find time for the one true God. Not that those things are bad, just in distortion, they are not the one true God. And so we get the gift of time and we abuse it. And we get the gift of the talents that God has given us. And we further invest them back into ourselves rather than into the church and into the mission of God at large. And we take the wonderful educations and all the wonderful finances we have in North America and we terminate them on bigger houses and larger properties and better jobs with more lucrative careers as opposed to using that same skill set or that same financial prof- prosperity and throwing it at the mission field. And we wonder why uh, we find emptiness in all of those talents and treasures that we have. And in our positions of influence that God graciously lavishes upon us, we abuse that ability and we find comfort in that. And we use our places of influence for, for what? Is it to advance God's kingdom? Is it to make his name known and worshipped and great? 
Do you share the gospel with people in your relationships with them? Or are you comfortable in the fact that you just have a relationship with them? You see, God has blessed that relationship upon you for one purpose and one purpose only, which is to advance his kingdom. And so then in verse 13, we're going to get the punishment for Gomer. And he says, And I will punish her for the feast of the days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them. And she adorned for herself with ring jewelry. And she went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. I think about uh, the American Christian church and the blessings that God has given us and the peace that he's given us without facing persecution for the last 300 years. And what have we done with that besides pursue the idols of more money and more people and bigger buildings and better worship equipment and fog machines and things like that? And all of the generosity that God has given us is terminated back on ourselves. And he's going to come back and the feast of the Baals, which he gave initially to the people in the Sabbaths and the new moons, the people of Israel have turned and terminated back on their own personal worship of who God is. And I think so often we don't follow the prescribed way of worshiping God as is outlined in scripture. And we just do whatever we want to and we worship God on our own terms. And he's given us all this gracious prosperity and generosity and financial wealth and we just don't use it according to how God ought to use it. And Gomer is accused in this passage of wearing ring jewelry or, or ring and jewelry. And this would have been a common adornment of a cult prostitute at the time which means that at least at this point in time, Gomer's depravity has taken her all the way to cult prostitution, which is one way in which the people would worship Baal, which is by going into a, a temple of Baal and having sex with whoever would want to have sex with them as a means of worshiping Baal, fertilizing the ground. And Gomer has partaken in this cult prostitution. And as terrible as that sounds, the wealth and luxury that is on display is the wealth and luxury of a cult prostitute. And Israel, by the same extent, built beautiful buildings and shrines to worship not Yahweh, but Baal for the fertility that he gave them. In fact, all throughout the land, you can read about in First and Second Kings, they continue to build these high places, which are places not to worship God, but to worship Baal. And they use great building materials like gold and silver, which should have been reserved for the ark and for the temple. But they worship Baal by using those resources. And today, again, we build beautiful churches with expensive equipment to worship who? We have forgotten God and our love for him, and we have wandered into our former sins, into our former way of life, which is a life of idolatry. You see that the guilt that Israel faces is fully and finally that they forgot who God was. He says they forgot me. And that is the thing that has led them down this path, that they have forgotten the one true God and they have turned away their passions to a false God. And as God pleads with his bride to return, he gives his third and final judgment. In this case, the verdict, the outcome. He's going to once again kindle their romance. Though they forgot him, he does not forget them. So in verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. 
You see, despite all of Gomer's wanderings and all of Israel's wanderings, God's purpose of redemption will not be thwarted by their own lustful idolatry of who he is. He's going to take his wayward bride and he is going to, in his own words, allure her or a more on-the-nose interpretation would be seduce her. He is going to take her back into the wilderness as he once did and court her and date her again and romanticize her and love her and whisper tenderly to her. And he's going to pour out his love on her because there's nothing that she could do that could disqualify her from his love. His purpose of love will not be thwarted. And he's going to take his bride back into the wilderness. And if you remember, we were just reading a moment ago in Exodus chapter 32. They were in the wilderness at that point. And in Exodus chapter 20 is when God makes that initial covenant with him, the covenant where we get the Ten Commandments. And before he gave that commandment that you shall have no other gods before me, the covenant that he makes with them is first this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the household of slavery. And then he goes on and says, therefore have no other gods before me. Therefore don't make idols. Therefore don't kill one another. Don't cheat on your spouses. Therefore, and what is the therefore? It is because of the Lord God. He is the Lord God who has done what? Rescued them out of the land of Egypt. And even further than that, it's not like Egypt was a great place for them to live. It's not some neutral location. They were enslaved for 400 years in the land of Egypt. So God is going to take his wayward bride back to the place and renew his covenant marriage vows with her and remind her of the fact that he is the one who rescued her from slavery. He is the one who bestowed gifts upon her. He's the one who made her a nation when she wasn't one. He's the one who led her out of captivity and into the promised land. He's the one who gave her all of the splendor which she now enjoys and is abusing on her other lovers. He removes us from the slavery that we once had to our former idols and establishes our identity fully and finally in who he is. He says, I am the Lord your God. That is the identity marker of the church. That is the identity marker of the people of Israel that they are marked by the fact that God is their God. You see, the reason the curse in chapter one was so bad that they were not his people, that that was such a bad thing, is because the only identity marker that Israel had is that they were God's people, that he was their Lord, that he was their Yahweh, their covenant God. And he once again pours out his mercy and grace upon us, even to this day. The most surprising reference in this last text is actually in verse 15. It's the Valley of Achor. Now, unless you are a well-studied student of scripture, you might not pick up that cross-reference. That cross-reference comes out of Joshua chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. If you want to jot that down and look that up later, I highly recommend it. Here's how the story goes. I'll summarize it for you. They are conquesting people, the Israelites are, and they're going into the promised land. And in one of the battles that they win, God says, all the spoils of this battle belong to me that I'm going to give you victory over this people, but all of the gold, all of their animal, all of their livestock, every spoil that you would get from the battle and take to yourself, it's going to be reserved for me, your God, because I'm the one who provided the victory. And so all of the people go and they win the battle. In fact, they decimate this other country that's living in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And when they decimate this other people, one man, Achan, takes what's called a devoted thing or something that God said is reserved for himself. And this sin is found out because later they go to battle again and they get destroyed by the country that they're facing. In fact, a much smaller nation than the one they just beat. And Joshua tears his clothes and falls before the Lord and cries out to him and says, why have we just lost this battle? And the Lord says, because 
one of you, one amongst your number, has taken a devoted thing. And so they seek out and buy first by tribe and then by head of household and then by individual family. They figure out that it is Achan who has taken the devoted thing. And they go and search his tent and they find the devoted thing. And the punishment that comes on him is that he is going to be killed on the spot by God. That's the punishment that falls on him. He gets justice for his sin. And so it's an interesting statement that God would hear say through the mouth of Hosea, I will make the valley of Achor, which is where this all took place, all these events, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And you think about the fact that this place where God's wrath was poured out and on display before the people, that his judgment on Achan was poured out, how could that be a symbol of hope? How could that possibly happen? Well, you see, the, the wrath of God being poured out is, in fact, our greatest hope. The symbol of our greatest hope is the wrath of God fully and finally poured out on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The judgment of God poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ is the picture of the hope that you and I find. You see, the wrath of God poured out is the door by which you and I find our redemptive hope. As we see God's judgment of sin on Jesus, it stirs us to consider our own sin, that that is how God sees sin, by Jesus crucified on a cross. The picture of judgment serves as the picture of hope. As we look and light the Advent candle, we're reminded of the child born to die, die for you and me. So in this verse, in this passage, we see that rather than stripping us naked, Jesus Christ is stripped naked before Roman authorities. Rather than killing us with thirst in the wilderness, Jesus Christ hangs thirsty on a cross. Rather than having no mercy on us, God chooses to have no mercy on Jesus, who feels the full weight of his wrath. Rather than forsaking us and calling us not his people, he turns his back on Jesus Christ and forsakes his only begotten son. Rather than us being restrained from the glory of God, God restrains and holds back his presence from Jesus on that cross. Rather than taking away our blessings of eternal life, he takes away Jesus' blessings and he trades that in place for you and me to sit at the right hand of God. He gives Jesus the full curse where we deserve the full curse. Rather than us who wore the jewelry of the prostitute being punished, Jesus, the perfect and spotless lamb who wears the jewelry of the purple robe and the crown of thorns is punished on the tree. Do you see the picture? The picture is that Jesus died on the cross under the wrath of God in the place of you and me, the adulterous people. And Jesus does so to freely extend that offer of eternal life to anyone who would receive him because he has purchased on the cross a definitive salvation for people, a real, actual, atonable salvation. He has died in the place of you and me. And when he hung on that cross, he had us in mind. And if you have never received him, I pray that you would listen to the warnings that we just read about in this passage, that there is a real judgment from God, that there is a real punishment for sin, but there is a real hope through the picture of the judgment as fully seen in Christ. And if you would call upon Christ as the symbol of hope, as the person who stands in your place, you will receive the hope of Christ and not the just wrath of which you are deserving. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the picture of hope that you have shown us through your son cursed on a tree. Lord, I thank you that that is a real, actionable payment for sin, a payment that satisfies your wrath, Lord God, and that we can stand redeemed. We can stand as children, children of light, children of the living God. We can stand as your people, as those who've received mercy because of Jesus' finished work on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that we would not too soon forget that truth as we reflect on it throughout this week. And I pray all of these things in your name. Amen.